Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And we're back. Welcome in for another edition of Let's Hear It. You've found us. Welcome on in. Find a seat on the couch. And Mr. Brown, how you doing? What's going on today? I am doing as well as can be expected, as they say these days. I'm a little gravelly, but I'm going to be okay. Man, well, I hope everyone in the world continues to recover from this ever-present thing that we're all trying to recover from, whatever whatever your version of that might be. I don't know. It's like motorcycle riders. It's two kinds, those who have gone down and those who are going down. So oh, I would say just stockpile a little bit of cough medicine yeah. and some flu, Theraflu or something. Yeah, anyway. and I'm 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 aggressively evaluating whether or not I will ever again leave my house. But but let's move on. So who do we have? Who do we have joining us today, Mr. Brown? Today I, I had this really terrific conversation with Jen Hoos Rothberg, who runs the Einhorn Collaborative, which is a charitable foundation started by David Einhorn, who's a venture capital guy who really believes that what the world needs is connection, human connection. And Jen has been working with David for 15 years, helping to build up this philanthropic organization. And in the last year or so, she has been engaging in a project that is, that's called a call to connection. And it is a, a call for all of us to try to address these fundamental challenges. She says we're in a crisis of connection that we have to address if we're going to unlock any of the other opportunities that we have in our society. And I, I think that it really rings true. You have to look around and see that so much of what we are dealing with right now comes from the fact that we are feel alienated, lonely, polarized, partisan, and that so much of our politics emanates from that. And this project is a way to help us think through that, to, to understand it, I think for foundations, it's a way to address many of the other issues that they care about. And it's a very interesting project. And we, I think we had a, a pretty interesting conversation about it. So you can find Call to Connection at calltoconnection.us. You can find more out about the work of the Einhorn Collaborative at einhorncollaborative.org. And you can find Jen on Twitter at Jen, J-E-N-N, Rothberg, at Jen Rothberg. And uh, here's Jen from Twitter on July 21st. Human beings want purpose. We want meaning. We want to belong to something larger than ourselves. Gorgeous essay about the human dimensions of decision-making via the New York Times opinion section. This was a wonderful conversation, Eric, and what a treat to listen to it. We'll come back and talk after. But for now, this is Jen Hoos-Rothberg on Let's Hear It. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Jen Hoos-Rothberg, the executive director of Einhorn Collaborative, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to addressing America's growing crisis of connection. 
Einhorn has just released a new report called A Call to Connection, Rediscovering the Transformative Power of Relationships. Now, I have to say that Einhorn Collaborative, which is started by a hedge fund manager named David Einhorn, a famous Mets fan, for, for one, uh, you don't usually associate hedge fund managers with people calling for a connection. Can you just tell me how this got started? How it started from the very beginning. Yeah, <laughs> it started at the very beginning. Started, well, first, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Eric. I so appreciate the invitation and you uh, being enthused about the work of Einhorn Collaborative. And yes, it is led by and founded by David Einhorn, who I am very lucky to have worked with since 2007. So I've been in this role for some time. And uh, when I met David and I asked him what kind of difference did he want to see in the world, he said, I want to help people get along better. And what that meant at its core was that the way people engage with one another greatly impacts how we feel as individuals, how we engage as a society, and how we solve our greatest social problems. So at its core is relationalism how we engage with one another, that it is not a nice to have, it is absolutely sacrosanct and necessary. And that's directly tied to David and the kind of change he wants to see in the world. And you've been, you say, so it was about 15 years that you've been doing this? Yeah, yeah. How did you get started? How did you end up sitting in that seat that you're sitting in right now? Yeah, I started out on the fundraising side. I have my master's in city and regional planning. I was really focused on um, community development, social change. I'm a social capital junkie. I'm just absolutely obsessed with how when people come together, it leads to greater things. And, um, and when I was getting my master's in city planning, I really wanted to do the work. I wanted to engage in the nonprofit work and I was drawn to the nonprofit sector. And so when I was on campus, I got involved with one of the nonprofits on campus and I ended up doing fundraising because fundraising just comes really naturally to me. It's the kind of thing that if you care about mission, you need resources, resources drive social change. And doing that work, I got to meet David and um, we built a really nice relationship. And he said, do you think you can come help me do more work over here? A social capital junkie is. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, that's a technical term. Yeah, I'm sure there's <laughs> websites for that or it's for programs or something. Yes, wish... please find me a group. <laughs> I wish you luck with that. <laughs> like I said, uh, David strikes me as an iconoclastic hedge fund type. <laughs> I mean, well, for starters, I, I just looking him up, of course, finished 18th in the World Series of Poker. Yeah. So can you tell when he's. Does he have a good poker face? Are you sure what he's good? Look, I don't play poker with him. I'll tell you that. Um, and the benefit of his prowess at, at poker is that every time he has winnings, they go to some of our great nonprofit partners. So it's been a great way to bring visibility to some of the organizations that we're involved in and bring great philanthropic resources to them. I'm always interested in how We've had this long talk in, in philanthropy around how people who come from tech or they come from the, the business community think that they can apply business models to the nonprofit world and and to, frankly, building social capital rather than financial capital. Do you have any thoughts about 
whether that when that makes sense and when it doesn't and what you do about that? I mean, if you're asking, yeah, if you're asking me if that's one of the charges that I get from my trustee, it, it's not. I mean, really, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't believe that there are healthy business practices that can and should be embedded into healthy nonprofit practice like any business. And we believe in investing in the core capabilities of our nonprofit partners so that they can actually achieve meaningful, measurable, sustainable results. And I am really lucky that David has enabled us as his uh, foundation team to construct the kind of philanthropic investments in organizations that enable them to build those core capabilities. Um, and I think there's this misnomer that we know better because we come from business. I, I don't get that. But I do believe when I started, um, there was a lot of belief that, you know, just this idea of buying outcomes, buying programs. And I'm a real believer in the, the buy build framework that people come into philanthropy often and say, I love what's happening in that school. I want to pay for it in that school and pay for it in three other schools. What's the cost of it to be in that school times three? I write you that check. And then you don't do it two years later and the program goes away from those schools. Everyone knows that. Um, the problem is a lot of people come to philanthropy with that um, assumption that you can just pay for outcomes. The distinction of where we've been over the last decade plus and what David has enabled at Einhorn Collaborative is that we believe in building institutions, which means that when you build and invest in nonprofits by providing that flexible kind of capital that builds capacity to measure outcomes, have a learning culture, invest in people's uh, paychecks to be equitable, those kinds of things, that's what leads to outcomes. Um, and if you are willing to spend the time to watch the journey of a healthy nonprofit organization build those core capacities, you will see exponential results return. And I think David has been open always and watched that kind of, we've watched as a team, those kinds of uh, impacts unfold. I had a very interesting conversation with a prominent hedge fund manager, and he said, my, my strategy is to put all my eggs in one basket and then watch and help build that basket. And he invests in leaders, and he makes sure that they have everything possible that they need in order to succeed. And he said that that's his investment strategy as an investor in the private sector, which is you pick good leaders, you, you find people who you think can lead an organization or a company well, and then you ha make sure that they have everything they need to succeed. I think that there's a lot of alignment with what you might call trust-based philanthropy or new approaches to philanthropy, which is rather than try to, to proscribe particular outcomes, you, what you do is you find people who you think can get things done or have a vision or are good at leading people or understand a community or those sorts of things. And then you help them do their thing because we have a ten we, and I'll use the royal we uh, as someone who graduated from philanthropy, tend to think that we know better. And as you just said, how could we? Yeah, look, I have the benefit of having been on the other side and being a crackerjack grant writer. And so if you're really good at writing grants and helping funders hear exactly what they want to hear and get exactly what they want, I'll call it an illusion of alignment where the nonprofit is telling the funder what they want to hear, the funder hears what they want to hear to get to some transactional um, exchange of resources or the funder says, yeah, I'd really like that program 
in blue instead of green, sure, 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 we can make that happen for you, snap a shot of it. Anyone who's been in development knows sort of that game. And everyone who works on my team has been in a fundraising capacity because you cannot be a great grant maker if you've not been um, on the other side of what it is to actually drive social change inside the nonprofit sector. So that's one for sure. And then I think the um, we are generalists. We are not experts. I um, The moment that you in a funding capacity start to believe you are the expert is the moment that you really become blinded to the kind of um, change you want to see. So for us, it's really about this mutual alignment of what skills, tools, resources, capital R, the dollars, but also networks, relationships that we can bring to the table. We bring one piece, but then all of the expertise are really understanding what's happening on the ground. We are always going to be 30,000, 100,000 feet away from that. And if we start to believe that we know, we will get it wrong every time. So we've got to set the table to recognize the mutuality. So it's trust-based, but it's also that we're sitting on the same side of the table and looking at the problem together. Instead of putting the problem between us, it's in front of us. And that means that we have shared work together. We mutually respect what each of us brings to the table, and then we can accomplish change that we couldn't have that couldn't happen without the other. I love this concept of the illusion of alignment because it's really true. It, it it's if you're a funder and you're in within the sound of our our voices here, ask yourself what makes you think you you know, or what makes you think you're actually in alignment. What are you what are you seeing that proves that you're in alignment rather than that someone who has has to be able to articulate something that you care about tells you what you want to hear. It's I, I, I say this almost every show, but my old boss, Paul Brass, used to have this thing on his desk where the little plaque that said, with money in your pocket, you're handsome, you're funny, and you sing well, too. Yes, yes. And uh, and it, he, he understood the fallacy of that. Obviously, you came straight into philanthropy from the fundraising side, and it seems like you came in at or near the top of the decision tree in your organization. Obviously, you have a donor, but uh, what did you do to learn over these 15 years? Because you've been kind of rocket ride to the top of your organization. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, I Look, I was the first full-time employee. So this is, it's different than the institutions that you've worked at, Eric. This is um, first generation high net worth individual that seeks to be philanthropic while living. And I had the great benefit of uh, being along the journey with him in the process to figure out what do meaningful philanthropic partnerships look like? What is it that he would want to do? Um, so it's not that I rocketed to the top. There was just, I would, there was only one seat. <laughs> so you rocketed to the bottom uh, and the top. Yeah, I, maybe the bottom, right? Um, I think over time, then it was about uh, realizing we needed to build a team and uh, being able to hire people who had been in the sector for longer than me, who are older than me, getting to realize that uh, we had to build a team of people who had actually been doing the work on the ground, closer to the ground, um, that has bolstered our work in, in, in unbelievable ways. Um, but we're still a relatively small and scrappy team because we primarily make larger investments in fewer things in a deep partnership way with the organizations on the collaboratives that we support. Because if we want more relationalism in the world, we must practice it. And that means that we are not the kind of shop that a 
as tons and tons and tons of grants that are going through cycles and RFPs. We invest deeper, longer, more relationally. Well, this notion, notion of relationships obviously is at the center of the mission of the organization, which is to address America's growing crisis of connection. Good heavens, you don't have to look up right now to see that the pandemic is a metaphor for these troubled times where we've isolated even more, ironically, because of a person close to, you have to have be close to somebody in order to communicate the, the virus and, and it causes you to be pushed further apart. What, how does that affect your work? I mean, it feels like we're as atomized and separated and disconnected as one can imagine. How do you think about your work in those terms? Yeah, the, this, um, this problem of the crisis of connection existed well before the pandemic. And then the pandemic just gave us a perfect illustration of how much we need each other. And you're right, this term um, social distancing, which you know our Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wishes we said physical distancing and not social distancing, but all of a sudden people recognized like, yes, you're right, we can't be together. And you had a spiraling of more of the challenges that we were witnessing prior to the pandemic, because like I said before, we need each other. The problem is, is as much as we need each other, we're in a moment right now where we're not trusting one another. So that lack of trust, you brought about trust-based philanthropy. Well, trust-based anything right now, trust of your neighbor, trust of your institution, trust of your government, trust is down and trust is down. Skepticism is up. People are hurt. People are longing to be part of things. And yet in that yearning and longing, um, in their hurt and pain, um, feel that they can't find a place where they're fully seen, heard, and valued. And if you don't feel seen, heard, and valued, then you retreat. You um, So it's self-perpetuating, unfortunately. And we, we believe that we need a shock to the system. We need to waken up and recognize that, yes, this can't, it, this is happening. And we are in a position to be able to see these challenges with almost a new set of glasses on, a lens of disconnect or a lens of connection. And when you start to look at the things in your life that are painful or hurtful, and you say, well, where are my connections working or where are they not? And could I use connection as an ameliorant? The research, the science, demonstrates that it is one of the best buffers, one of the best, but we don't grasp it so quickly because we assume that it's not what other people want. There's there's this fascinating research that it's like, I'm not gonna go talk to them because that person doesn't want me to talk to them and they're gonna think blah, blah, blah. And then actually all the research is that someone else is thinking the exact same thing, which is why they're not talking to you. So now we're just on other sides of the room and not talking to each other. And if you actually break that apart and you go, and you break that and you go have that talk with a stranger on the subway or you chat with the person in line while getting coffee, you actually leave, you find it's so joyful most times. It's so meaningful and fulfilling. And both of you walk away being like, I didn't think that that could happen, but now I feel great. And we actually have to break this, this habit or this culture to just assume that everyone, no one wants to be interrupted. Well, you've launched a project to take these ideas and and 
put them into practice and to engage people around the country on this. And after the break, I'm going to talk more about a call to connection. So we'll be right back with Jen Hoos-Rothberg right after this. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And we're back with Jen Hus Rothberg, the executive director of Einhorn Collaborative. And you have just launched this project called A Call to Connection, Rediscovering the Transformative Power of Relationships at a time right now when we are as atomized and disconnected as possible. You're trying to take that on. How, how did this come about? I can understand why you did it, but how, how did you come up with this approach? And tell us more about what it is. Well, this almost has to do with you, Eric, in some ways, which is that, you know, for my, so I'm going to blame you, okay. um, you know, in, uh, <laughs> in a positive way. The, I, so I came to this work as a fundraiser and then immediately became a grant maker and thought that good philanthropy was just about doing good grant making practice. And after a decade of that work and really going and talking to our grantees and our peers, Many of our grantees said, you know, could you tell the articulated story of why we're part of your portfolio? Could you shine a light on the work that we're doing? Like you're in a position to be able to do that. And I was so hesitant to do anything really related to communications uh, and philanthropy. Sometimes it just felt like, I don't know, I was always sort of questioning the motivation of communications and philanthropy to, I don't know. Be blunt. Go ahead. Be blunt. And uh, we do blunt. Okay. And um, and that's the same thing about look like convenings. You know, like philanthropy. So quick. Like we should convene everyone. And then you 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 know you do a survey of your grantees. Yes, yes, please. And then you ask you know anonymous questions. They're like, no, I feel like constantly I've got to jump through hoops because you fund or invite me and I got to be there. So as someone who knows that so much, I was always hesitant to engage in the other tools of the trade. But we went through a process where we uh, rebranded and launched the foundation in uh, October 2020. As Einhorn Collaborative, we changed our name, intentionally focusing on collaboration. And we really focused the mission around this crisis of connection, which was when we really studied the root cause of the problems that we were trying to solve, we could sum it up in those terms. Alienation, loneliness, polarization, partisanship, really at their core is this breakdown and connection. Um, and we had a great partner who was helping us with our strategy about communications. And he said, you are Raphael Bemberag from uh, BBMG. And he said, you know, like, you need to actually tell this story. And I'm like, no, no, no. And he's like, you had, your grant making is great and communications can help shine a light on the kind of movement and social change that you're after. Um, and so Raphael was helpful in pushing us in that direction. And then I heard enough of it from our grantees saying, could you help explain why, why does Interfaith Youth Corps, um, where college students come together across div faith divides to do service together to do social change, and Nurture Science Program, which helps moms and babies bond in the earliest days, weeks, months in life, what do those two things have to do with one another? 
So what could have been seen as a siloed strategy, we understood at Einhorn Collaborative, were so integrated because at their core, it's about relationalism, pluralism, upending this crisis of connection to develop empathy, compassion, collaboration, teamwork to solve those social problems. So we started to do some communications. And then when we came up with a crisis of connection piece, we started to get questions from others saying, what do you mean by the crisis of connection? Like, what is the what is the core of this crisis you're talking about? And we knew from our work that there's tons of science. There's tons out there. Um, we had great partners who could point to that. And yet we didn't have the, I'll call it the thing to hand to you to say, here's the thing that we mean when we talk about the crisis of connection. How do we bring you into the fold of how we're thinking about it? So we talked to two great partners. One was the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, who's been a partner of ours for the last decade plus, and a newer partner of ours, Sacred Design Lab. And the reason why we brought Sacred Design Lab in is that we realized that it's not just the science that convinces people that it's the call to connection. Like actually, most people don't make decisions, though funders want the science, but most people are not making decisions based on the data and science. They're making it based on a set of feelings and stories and wisdom traditions are some of the best to point to about how human beings have come together for a millennia. Faith traditions have figured this out, how to connect to purpose and belonging, connection and community. So we asked Sacred Design Lab and Casper Tukule, who leads that effort and his peer, his partners, um, along with Greater Good Science Center to meet, to pull together the science, the stories, the wisdom traditions to put together this primer. And that was a year ago. And we did it in a collaborative way. We brought many experts from across different facets of our work to inform the process. You can't, you can't name yourself Einhorn Collaborative and not do things collaboratively. So these things, this wasn't just someone went in a room and wrote it. We had lots of input you, and engagement. You could, but you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, you really should. It's true. It's true, true. So, uh, and, and then this collaborative artifact uh, emerged and we decided we wanted to come up with creative ways to be able to share this with anyone who's in a position where they create community, whether that is a foundation leader who creates a culture and invests in community, whether that's a business leader, whether that is someone who's bringing people together in local problem solving, relationships are core to that work. They're not just a means to an end, they are an end rightfully in and of itself. And that was the purpose of the primer. Well, you know, I, I think about how challenging this is because it is really easy to mess things up. It's easy to divide people. And we see it in, in politics. We see it in all sorts of ways, how easy it is to mess it up. It's really hard to get people to connect and to come together. What are you calling on people to do? What is the, what is the call to action? Well, the first call is to start to see your work through the lens of connection, where if there's upset or irritation or you feel that something's not working, my first question to you is, have you tended to the relationships? I'm a big believer. This isn't just like you, you have good relationships or you don't. Human beings are messy. We constantly mess up relationships. How much do we invest in repairing those relationships? How much do we actually go and say, hey, in that meeting, you said something, it sort of irked me. Could we just touch base on that? 
Instead, we let those things fester. It changes the way we think about that person. We don't then work well with that person. It changes our satisfaction and engaging. And then people leave their jobs. So part of this is um, I am, I'm calling people to look through the lens of connection in the work that they're doing. This is not having, I'm not asking people to invest in the things that we invest in, though I'd love for people to join us um, in organizations, nonprofits that do this work well. Instead, this is being attuned to the culture inside whatever community you're in a position to nurture and tend to. Think about what are the ways in which you create a culture that has the container that's attuned to connection? How do you give permission to talking about the relationships when they're working, when they're not? Um, how do you enable forgiveness and repair wherever you're engaging? And that, you know, we, we brought up trust earlier. Trust takes time. So how much time are you engaging? We're all so busy. Well, I would say that taking time to build trust is going to make some of those other things work much better. Um, and the science demonstrates that the stories and the primers show that. And then you have to like go against your productivity pinging, constantly telling you you've got your next thing to do and ask yourself, how can I actually create space for this? And then I'm inviting people to create space for it. One thing, so the science, I know science is, some people really care about science and other people care about stories. And I think that some combination of the bo of, of the two is important. Uh, connection is better for your health. It's better for, uh, I mean, the science shows that it's a good idea. And yeah, we, you know, we don't always do things that are good for our health. Hence my love of bacon, for example. But still, <laughs> uh, it helps me to know that there are ways to be better. Obviously, right now, we, you know, we're so polarized. We're so, Congress is a, just a catastrophe. We can't get anything done. And social media, so-called social media, which is ostensibly allows us to stay connected to more people, feels like it's fueling a more divided and divisive culture. I mean, I'm going to ask you to be an optimist, but you, I know you're an optimist or else you wouldn't be doing this work. How do we cut through the most challenging aspects of the things that are dividing us? Well, look, there's a difference between connecting and connection, right? So I would push people to say, like, there's a there's a statistic that's in the in the primer that says that in 1984, people had three close confidence that they could call upon. And 20 years later, the number is down to two. So um, my mom always said to me, you don't need to have tons of friends. You just need to have a few. So I would start with what are the close in relationships in people's lives that you can start to develop and nurture? That's not answering your question about going up against the divisiveness, but it is speaking to like, what is the thing that I can do right now? And as people feel divided, they're continuing to feel lonely and loneliness is further fueling many of those choices. So like loneliness, another stat around your health is it's the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So investing in connection in your life benefits you physically, it benefits you socially, it benefits you emotionally. A feeling and loneliness is different than solitude. I'm not saying people like the introverts out there. I'm not asking you to be an extrovert. Um, it's that feeling where I don't feel I belong, or I have a place that I matter, or I have people in my life who care about me. 
25% of people in America today actually feel like they have zero close friends. I mean, just imagine that. Think about the moment where you're like, I just need like that phone a friend. People need that. So we need to invest in that. We need to nurture that. That's one. Two, I, I can only speak for our sector, but we're actually going out of our way to partner with foundations who are really different from us uh, from the political spectrum. And that is almost crazy in philanthropy. Uh, but I would say that crazy idea to go up against divisiveness right now means that funding can perpetuate divisiveness because the organizations that we choose to fund it's on us as funders to actually change our own behaviors if we want to change some of the behaviors that are happening in our social change sector. So we asked um, a group of foundations across political ideologies to join us in pursuit of investing in how we build a more pluralistic America. We, so that's a funder collaborative called New Pluralists. It started with a few of us. Uh, we now have 15 funders who are pooling resources and investing in culture change related to how Americans engage with one another across divides. That's political divides, racial divides, uh, generational divides. Um, and we know there's a lot of remarkable structural work that's happening for the health of our democracy. And we see this as a complement to focus on the hearts and minds work of how we ignite a culture of relationalism and pluralism, the relationships that people have with their neighbors who are different from them actually changes the way they feel about how divided we are. That culture matters. And we're in a moment of something called affective polarization, where we would rather have people die of the other political party than to have our children marry people of the political party. I mean, it's really remarkable how, how bad it's become. Our sense is that relationships is, are not the full, the full sum of what's necessary, but it is, it is a baseline requirement of what's gonna be required to get out of this divisiveness. It's, it's really amazing. Well, all of us, each and every one of us, can make a deeper connection, and it will make us better and make us help healthier and feel more connected. So every single human being that walks the planet can can do something. The other thing, I mean, and then the flip side of that is, I was, I saw a Twitter poll the other day from somebody who with whom I probably agree politically, who said, "Who do you hate the? Which of these four senators do you hate the most?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Don't do that." Yeah. <laughs> Why did you do that? Why did you just make me feel worse and angrier and more divided? Can't you come up with something better to do with your time than to do clickbait on Twitter that taps into your pal's hatred? I mean, we just have to, you know, just stop not doing it. Stop doing that crazy stuff is a good start, but or feeding it or engaging in it. But you're right. This this notion of connection is something that we all have a need for physically and emotionally. And I can only imagine how much better we would all be, just each of us, if we were to do that more and all of us are capable of it. I love what you're doing, engaging philanthropy on this. Again, this is this is squishy stuff that a lot of, you know, monitoring evaluation people probably just spin in their sleep thinking that, oh, my God, please don't let, make us do a program on connection because I can't measure it but, you can but you can measure bad. it it is it's not soft, <laughs> I it's not soft and squishy it's measurable <laughs> and hard and one of the big calls to connection i would make here from funders is 
Um, all of those things that you think are meaningful and measurable, we can point to meaningful and measurable things around social cohesion that drive healthy democracy, that drive healthy outcomes. And yes, uh, the, the level of empathy that you have, those things are measurable, but then I would ask, what do we need to measure? What is most important to measure right now? And I'd say the behavior of engaging with funders who disagree so much on some things, but can agree on this and can work together and pool resources and do shared decision-making and shared work to invest in building bridges across Americans, that to me is measurable and we can actually demonstrate it. And, uh, and so I wanna upend this belief that this is kumbaya and soft. <laughs> this is hard, it's meaningful, it's measurable, it's sustainable, it's investable, um, and we'd love for people to join us. Well, I didn't mean to push your buttons, but we <laughs> certainly went out on a... Can you tell? Can you tell? It is. It's a button. <laughs> no, I'm so easy when it comes to stuff we like that. We <laughs> certainly went out on a high note. I totally agree with you, by the way. <laughs> Jen Hoos-Rothberg of the Einhorn Collaborative. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. And I really encourage people to follow up and to learn more about Call to Connection. Can you tell folks where they'll find it? Yes, calltoconnection.us. Uh, you can find it, you can see it online, you can download it, and you can share it with others. Well, thank you again. It's been really, really great talking to you. Oh, it's a thrill, Eric. Thanks for having me. And we're back. That was Jen Hoos Rothberg from the Einhorn Collaborative. You can find them at einhorncollaborative.org. And, and Jen describing her work with Einhorn to help people get along better. So I know we try to do this breakdown in just a couple of minutes, but I feel like we need a two-part breakdown because once again, this was a <laughs> master's class, once again, once again, you have interviewed somebody who's caused me to question all my life choices because this is clearly what purpose, direction, creativity, intelligence, where it gets you. <laughs> but now, now, Kirk. Now, but, now. well, and, and you know, doing Jen, this is supposed to make you feel better, not worse. Yeah, so that's right. well, that's right. perhaps you just have to find a different therapist. But you gave us, and maybe that therapist's name is Mr. Brown, but, but you gave us. <laughs> I'm not charging you enough. You, you clearly, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> So you gave us a two-part discussion, and I think we need to deal with them each in turn because the first part of your conversation was really about the art and science and practice of philanthropy. And then the second part, you related it to the work of the Einhorn Collaborative. But so tell me about your conversations with Jen as she reflected on creating meaningful, measurable, sustainable results. And one of my favorite things we've heard today on the podcast the illusion of alignment, getting beyond this transaction, this transactional exchange of resources, but actually really developing meaningful relationships from a philanthropic standpoint. Tell me a little bit about that, because that was a great, I love that part of your conversation. Well, I, I agree because it's, hey, look, folks, peer-to-peer -peer marketing is the best kind. Don't take it from us. Take it from someone who actually does this for a living that there are ways to do philanthropy and there are ways to do philanthropy. And I think that what she's doing is approaching this, this work with the kind of humility and care that we all need to do if we're working in, in philanthropy. And what she is saying is that, I mean, she said that, you know, the moment you think you're the expert is the moment you become blinded to the change you want to see. That in philanthropy, what we are doing is we are investing in people who are doing the work we are helping to build strong organizations and strong leaders that 
that we need to work together to address challenges or to engage in solutions. I mean, she said, you know, she wants to be sitting on the same side of the table and looking at the problem. I love that. Is is the problem between us or is the problem in front of us? That was such a beautiful way of saying that. I thought that was incredible. Yeah. So that's the fact that she began as a fundraiser was is certainly a huge advantage because then you understand the hoops that fundraisers have to go through, what foundations or donors do to the organizations that that they engage with. I mean, she's like, if you want to do it blue, we'll do it blue. You want to do it green, we'll do it green. We, I always said this before on the podcast in the past, which is that this notion of twisting these organizations into a pretzel mm. in order to get, I don't know, whatever you think you want to get out of the world is a challenge. And it's, I mean, it's just a waste. It's a waste of energy and talent and resources. And that her her approach has been to engage as a collaborator. And I, I've worked with a number of other organizations that are trying to do just that. And I will sort of like a quick little wink and a nod ahead to what the Adam McConnell Clark Foundation has done for the last 50, over 50 years. And as they wind down as an organization, we're going to learn a lot working on a project with them to talk about what they've learned over all these years. And so much of it is about investing in organizations, getting out of the way, making sure that they have the tools they need to, to succeed. And that's exactly what Jen is doing. So before she ended up launching a call to connection, before they really started focusing on the problem of disconnection, the, or what she calls the crisis of connection, I think she had to get the understanding about how to do this sort of work straight and has been working with David Einhorn for 15 years. And I think that she is demonstrating to us all how you can do philanthropy well. Well, and I love that reflection on making larger investments in fewer things and investing deeper and longer and more relationally. She did say one thing in passing, though, that was actually potentially some fighting words. And I was thinking to myself, man, this is <laughs> this is a collaborative, congenial, you know, we're trying to build the field, you know, and here we are, we're throwing some heat. So Jen said that they are generalists, not experts, and that I, they are relying on the field to prevent expertise. And that definitely struck me because I that sounded right to me. But I also think that there's a difference of approach in different philanthropies, because I think at some philanthropies, you really have to be an expert, at least that's the internal feeling, like we have to be the experts in the field to figure out how to, to, to correctly allocate these resources. So what do you make of that? Because she described providing the skills, the tools, the resources, the relationships, you know, if we think we know we'll get it wrong every time, like that's music to my ears. But what do you think about that balance between we're generalists versus we're experts and, and where that sits? Because I think it... There's something in there, this notion about funding relationally. I made this other note around this. Can foundations actually have real relationships? You know, is the power is the power imbalance so profound? Can you actually find your way past that? And it really feels like Jen has quite authentically done that. And I feel like that should be bottled and marketed because that's a priceless resource, what she's been able to do there. Well, let's put it this way. If you don't have high levels of trust between the donor and the grantee, then the information you're going to get back is going to be suspect. Building that kind of trust takes time. It takes deep relationships. And I do think that it's possible. 
I, th- I definitely think it's possible. It's not easy. And the fact that, as Jen said, they make very few grants, but they go deep, is a great way to build that level of trust because you're not spread so thin that you can't actually build the kind of relationships needed to to engage in that way. And so that's, I think, I think that's a lot of it. It is not easy. Mm. And the other thing about picking a few organizations and ensuring that you engage with them deeply, it is antithetical to much of what philanthropy does because you want to get invited to 17 different kinds of parties <laughs> instead of just the two. And I don't mean to say this, some of my best friends work in philanthropy, mm. but the idea that you want to have a little finger in a lot of things may be exciting and interesting and cool, but it may not get you where you really need to go. Mm. And I, I think that folks need to think about that as well. Is it, are we spread too thin? Are we spread so thin that we're never going to really actually get anything done or you know, go deep enough to make a difference? And th- those are big questions. So this is a great pivot to look at the focus of the philanthropy for the Einhorn Collaborative. And I keep thinking to myself when we're having these conversations, every single one of these topics that we've discussed, there's a wide array of them. Every single one of them is like the thing. You hear it and you're like, man, if we could just work on that, we'd really be making some progress. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) here comes Jen, who's Rothberg, here comes the Einhorn Collaborative. And they're like, no, actually, it's human relationships. That's the thing, you know, helping people get along better. So tell me about that because it, it and I want to make a pitch. Let's start at the end. It, it, we need a whole conversation about philanthropic measurement, and I want to invite Jen to lead it because 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 that was clearly a great way to you know end that conclude that discussion. Like, can you actually tangibly measure the quality of relationships and how that's impacting outcomes? And clearly, Jen's created a whole set of resources that point out how tells the story of what impact that turns into and is making a really powerful case that this is actually the work that needs to be done. And what do you make about that? I, I think it's amazing. I can't even believe it. Well, for starters, the moment when I, I suggested that some people might find it hard to measure the, the, the work was one of my favorite moments because I pushed their buttons so hard. I didn't do it on purpose, but she, she just kind of erupted mm. in frustration, which I i mean, it was all in good fun. But the fact <laughs> is that it is true that, so that's the end part. We'll go back to the beginning part, which is that this notion that we are in a crisis of connection, I think is, is meaningful. It's meaningful mm-hmm. to all of us. You don't have to go very far to see how disconnected we are. You don't have to go far to see that our politics and this is just not American politics. Look at any place. Look at, I mean, honestly, look at any place and yeah. their politics. When I don't know, maybe the the New Zealand might be an exception. <laughs> I don't know if the if the kingdom of Liechtenstein is feeling very polarized right now. But the point is that we are we are in this moment in human history in which we are deeply disconnected. Yeah. And. And as she said, that you know, people are experiencing alienation and loneliness and polarization and partisanship, and it's everywhere. And that effect is costing us on an almost every measurable human outcome, whether it's climate change or human health or war in Ukraine. Just pick your thing. So. It is true that we keep moving upstream. You know, we talked to Aaron <laughs> Belkin recently about how if we don't solve the problem of our governance, then yeah. all of the issues that our governance affects, whether it's 
a, a woman's right to have an abortion or climate change or any of these other things or voting or just mm-hmm. president the president. The, you, you have to get that stuff right. But it, you could make a pretty decent case. And I think Jen does that until you get to this stuff, which is our our sense of disconnection as human beings, you can't ever get to that other stuff anyway. So that obviously this is a great big thing to bite off. But if it has to be done, it has to be done. Oh, and then one more thing. And then I said, is it measurable? Yes, she's done all the science. She's mm-hmm. going ways to measure it and that we should we should stop pretending that that you can't measure things that you can measure because you don't want to do them or because they're too scary or because they seemingly are too squishy. Well, and I was thinking about, you know, Emily spoke about accessibility, you know, as being this, Emily Liddell. Yes, yes, as a topic that crossed different categories of people and different, you know, descriptors and crosses issues. And then I thought about this conversation Jen is putting forward around the crisis of connection and how that does the exact same thing. You know, so it doesn't matter who you are or where you are or what your orientation might be, but this notion of connection and its absence and its impact is so clear. And she said this so quickly. She said, I think, that the health impacts of loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Did yeah. you catch that? Yeah, I, I mean, I did. <laughs> so so if I, if I... If I feel really, really connected, maybe I can start smoking cigarettes. And Good. Like, yeah, oh, that, that, no, you're right. Exactly. Exactly. No, you don't, don't have to deal with anything else. No, you're right. It's true. 25% of Americans, a quarter of us, don't have a single close friend. Think about that. Yeah. And and often, I, I don't know, it's highly anecdotal, but you see, when, when things go bad, loners, people who feel disconnected, people yeah. who feel alienated, people feel that they're not understood, people who feel that they don't belong, who who often are the, at least a, a flashpoint for yeah. some kind of major problem. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, it rings true. Yeah. And if the science tells it, if the science tells me it's true, it's true, but I also, it rings true. And so you can clearly see how this, how this works. Now, you know, what are we going to do about it? This is, I, one thing is, is let's just talk a little bit about the work that Jen is doing. There is this mm. primer, and it is you know a very very interesting document about the problem and ways to to address the problem. And I, this is what you this is what you'll find at calltheconnection.us, right? right? This is at calltheconnection.us. Yes, 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 mm-hmm. exactly. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. And. The, what she is also doing, what they are also doing in partnership with this really great team of people who, who helped to develop it, are to give you tools yeah. to be able to do this work in your community, at your organization, in, in other places so that we can begin to address this kind of work. I will also throw in a plug if you are out there and you're a funder and you have a few coins in the couch, I would say that this would be an excellent investment to help mm-hmm. Jen and her team and these various colleagues continue to build this work out and to engage and to find ways to make those connections in communities because it's not the sort of thing, it's not just, it won't be solved by people just going to a foundation website and downloading the thing. It really requires a fair amount of outreach. Mm -hmm. Well, and also just go check out the Einhorn Collaborative site. Like it's a really beautiful set of branding and tools that support this entire you know, purpose and even actually renaming the institution a collaborative yeah. to focus, you know, it's just, I'm like, oh man, that's get ready. That, that'll, that should sweep philanthropy because that's such a cool notion. Right. And again, like establishing that idea of relationship right up front. And I do love that 
Jen gave us a very actionable and tangible thing for all of us to think about this notion of see your work, view your work through the lens of connection. And, and it actually, as, a, as, as somebody who manages teams and man, you know, in so much of our work is around organizing, right? And let's come together. And yet, you know, really being trained in what is it to foster connection, tend to the quality of relationships, investing in relationships, you know, creating a culture that's attuned to relationship. You know, she rightfully points out, and yet it's so easy to forget. It's probably the first thing that disappears in the, in the pace of a busy day. It's the quality of those relationships and building the trust that goes with that and the time that that takes. Like, that's the heart of the matter. Right. And it so clearly is, and yet so so hard to attend to that, I would say. And now here we are in the world of Zoom where, I mean, you and I, <laughs> we've been in a room together. We've spent a lot of time just hanging out and talking about nothing at all. And that helps. And I feel like there are a lot of folks out there who are listening right now who've never met their colleagues. Right. And they don't understand that level of connection. And and this isn't good enough. Staring at somebody on a screen isn't good enough. And so we now have yet another obstacle to overcome or or work our way around to to address this. So that's a thing. So can we talk about one last thing before we go? Because I know we're at time. Anything but, um, you want, Kirk. So Jed clearly isn't busy enough because she just cre- keeps hatching new schemes. And gotcha. this notion of the new pluralists and this idea of pooling resources with really distinct foundations to create real areas where people of all sorts of different sensibilities demonstrate what it is to work with each other, talk to each other, this notion of new pluralism. She writes very beautifully about it in an interview that's posted on the on the Einhorn Collaborative website. But it's so funny because I feel like so much of the work I've done using philanthropic resources has been the opposite of fostering connection. It's actually been about how do you win given right. the divides, right? And what do you think about that? Foundations intentionally saying, look, you know what, let's actually show, not tell what this looks like by pooling our resources to have conversations with folks that are very, very different than, than who we might think we are. What do you think about that? Well, it's true. And I mean, you could, you could argue that what we're doing isn't working. So I'll try something different. You could also say that that level, that building trust among people with whom you have some basic differences is an example of the thing that we are with that we need to achieve mm. if we're going to have any kind of future and that you have to start to you got to show your work mm-hmm. and collaboratives among foundations is, are hard i know I've, you know we've done it and the idea that you would pool your funds and come up with a way to come together to come up with a one set of grants instead of 15 that you have to understand that you're not going to get everything that you want that you that you don't have to use your form that you don't have to go with, do your spe- sprinkle your special herbs over the grant proposals <laughs> and and have your lawyer do your thing in your way, that's that's important, and mm-hmm. I, I, we just need to do a lot more of that. Yeah, it, I mean the transaction cost of the grant making goes down, I believe, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's not the real reason. The real reason is you have to demonstrate the thing you actually want to have happen, and that's one way to do it. So that's great, and the fact that she's getting folks to to throw in is is hugely valuable and i can think of no better person to to accomplish that than jen because that's kind of how she rolls 
Oh, clearly. Well, we need more social capital junkies like Jen Hoos Rothberg, clearly. So with the mighty thanks to David Einhorn, who's helping make this possible with let's the go Mets. Collaborative. <laughs> yeah, let's go Sorry, Mets. I'm so, I'm so simple. Anything else we should say before we go, Eric? I was going to, I was going to take a moment to, in, to engage in self-congratulation because as we, <laughs> as we were talking about Aaron and, and and Emily Ledow and, and Jen, I was like, we have really interesting guests. I'm learning a lot. Well done, well done. I've got a really good idea. There Uh-oh. should be no, a no, podcast. No, 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 no more of your ideas, Kirk. I'm I'm up to here with your ideas. Okay. So what are, well, what's your excellent idea? I'm sure it's. Fine. We should have a podcast focused on social change makers and communications, and just interview really interesting people, talk about it. What do you think about that? Terrible idea. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that later. Well, that was Jen Hoos Rothberg. That was Let's Hear It. And Eric Brown, once again, thank you. That was a treat. See you next time. Okay, everybody. That's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show. And that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank John Beltrano, our enthusiastic production assistant. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Until next time. Let's hear it.